Hi, my name is Jules Hamilton and this is Keeping It Good, the Good Summer podcast. I am so delighted to bring a slightly different podcast to you this week. We are revisiting a conversation with an old friend from a couple of months ago. In March, we had a Facebook conversation with Simon Anholt, the founder of the Good Country Index. And it is so good and what he says is so important that we decided to turn it into a podcast. And so, without further ado, that's why this conversation and this podcast is longer, because what Simon says is so important for the world. We love him in the Good Summit. His work is so important and his life speaks to his work. So without further ado, because time is tight, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Uh, let me take two minutes to introduce you to those who are listening. It is always a delight to see you again, friends. This is a man I think is an absolute genius. Uh, I really enjoy our conversations. I enjoy reading his books. Technically, he gets described on Google and other things as an independent policy advisor who has helped to work uh, with governments around the world and implement strategies for enhanced economic, political and most interestingly, perhaps in our conversation, cultural engagement uh, with other countries. He is the founder of the Good Country Index, uh, in which if you were here uh, a few minutes ago, you would have enjoyed the fact that Simon knows whenever we speak, I usually ask him a number or where where, where is a particular country. So he's... he's <laughs> I would have thought, sir, that you would have had your list right beside you in preparation. I've Not got it up yet. on the screen just in case you ask me any <laughs> questions. Um, Simon is the author of six books, including the one that I'm sure we're going to, to, to talk about today. And if you're on our mailing list or if you signed up to this event, you will now know that Simon, um, incredibly generously in conversation with the Good Summit, uh, has made it possible for people participating to get a free e-copy of his book, which says a few things. It says that he actually is a generous human, which means that he actually believes the stuff that he talks about in his books. And perhaps at the baseline level, it's always good to connect the Good Summit with people who don't just talk about trying to be better and more hospitable and generous and aware in life. They actually try to do it themselves. So, Simon, for your generosity and for your time this morning, thank you so, so much. It is good to see you. Can you... Can you can you begin? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to writing the Good Country Equation, which is a lovely book of your incredible work experience around the world. Uh, it, it reads it, the the content is like an academic text, but you put it in terms of a travel diary, uh, and it's it's a delight to read it like that. How did you get to be the person who does that? What took you to that place? Well, like so many of us, Jules, I'm a total imposter. Um, <laughs> I went to uh, I went to university and I studied um, medieval Italian literature and computational linguistics uh, and cultural anthropology. Computational linguistics, when it didn't even exist, I was lucky enough to have a tutor who'd invented it. Um, and so that was all fascinating, but absolutely nothing or mm, nearly nothing to do with what I subsequently went on and did. Um, I went to work in advertising mainly because my dad told me not to. 
And uh, as a result of that, I got interested in the idea of brands and brand image, how our behavior is swayed by our perceptions of certain icons and images and names. And I started to apply that to countries. And I got very interested in the idea that in our age of advanced globalization, countries have got brand images just as much as companies and their products do. And if you're lucky enough to have a powerful and positive image like, like Switzerland or Ireland or Sweden, relatively speaking, everything becomes much easier and much cheaper. Attracting foreign investment, attracting talented migrants, um, selling your products at a high margin and all the rest of it. If the country has a good brand image, that's so easy. If on the other hand, you're unlucky enough to have a weak or a negative brand image, maybe through no fault of your own, very likely through no fault of your own, just because you're not an especially prominent player in the international community, everything is difficult and everything is expensive. So the rich countries with the good images get richer and the poor countries with the bad or the weak images get poorer. So it turns out that this, this notion of the images of countries is actually one of the primary forces driving global inequality. It's a really, really serious issue. And the odd thing is that governments don't begin to understand it. And when I started to, it, okay, it was a bad expression, nation brand, it sounds a bit, you know, commercial. And um, that's what I was wondering, listening to it, you know, so we just get a good brand and a country gets more exactly. in, immigrants and a better exactly. economy. Well, I wish I'd had you with me then, Jules, because I didn't anticipate. <laughs> of course, what immediately happened was that governments all over the world started saying, oh, right, so we need to do more branding. All we need to do mm. is to start spending loads of money on advertising and marketing and logos and catchphrases, and that will boost the image of our country, and then we'll get more trade, we'll get more investment, we'll get more tourists, we'll get more international events hosted in our capital city and all the rest of it. And so I've spent much of the last 20 years basically researching this and fighting a rearguard action against this idea that you can deliberately distort or manipulate the image of a country. You can't, you've got to measure it because, because it's, it's, not, it's not what you think. You know, when, when somebody says to you, what, what do you think is the image of Britain or the image of Ireland or the image of America? So often you discover that what the majority of people in any given country or even globally think is so different from what you expect. I mean, lots of people, for example, are really quite surprised to discover that the most admired nation on average globally is Germany. Um, most people in the world on average think that Germany is the most admirable country on the planet and have done for many years. Now, if you, if you live yeah. in the UK, where um, anybody over the age of what, 35, has probably been fed a nonstop diet of anti-German propaganda, um, you'll be astonished by that. On the other hand, if you live in Uruguay or Guatemala, you won't be all that surprised because Germany has been much admired in Latin America for decades. So the, you, you have to research this stuff. You can't just guess at it. I mean, you know, people say, oh, America's so unpopular these days. It's not. It's still massively admired by the vast majority of people around the world. It's slipping, but only by tiny, tiny degrees. Or Britain's image has been trashed by Brexit. Not true. Britain's image has hardly suffered at all from Brexit, except in a few particular environments where you'd expect it. Globally, on average, hardly any difference at all. Mostly because most people have no idea what Brexit means or what the European Union is. Simon, can you tease those things out for us a little bit by telling us maybe what you would have thought Britain's 
perceptions of Britain would have been and, and what they actually are and, and America and Germany, maybe those three countries. Can, can you yeah. tease that out? Well, one of the interesting things is looking at how people in a given country imagine their image to be. Um, <laughs> you know, when you, uh, when, you, when you see a car in America, it's got that, that uh, safety warning on the, on, the, um, on the wing mirrors. It says, warning, objects may be closer than they appear. This is what we should bear in mind when thinking about country images. Because you're in your country and you're thinking about it all the time, you imagine that everybody else is as well. And that everything that goes on in that country is somehow observed continuously by the international community. And the tiniest things can destroy or rebuild your image from one day to the next. All the evidence is that it's nothing like that at all. Most people in the world seldom, if ever, think about foreign countries at all. And that's one of the reasons why our perceptions of other countries hardly change from year to year. It's actually almost impossible to improve the image of a country deliberately or even to destroy it. You could argue that the United States has been doing everything it can to damage its own image for the last 300 years, and it still hasn't succeeded. I mean, it goes invading other countries on a regular basis, and sure, that makes it temporarily unpopular and locally unpopular, but in the end, it always bounces back because people want America and they want Germany and they want Britain to be admired countries. But anyway, I, I, I missed out on saying the most important finding, and that is, as you say, the Nation Brands Index is a big data set. It's over a billion data points now. And so it's uh, that, that's data that's worth looking at. So back in 2012, I decided I was going to spend some time analyzing this huge database and ask it the simple question, so why do people admire country A more than country B? Why has Switzerland got a better image than, uh, than the Netherlands, right? And it turns out that if you do the measurements, the principal reason why people admire one country more than another is not because it's more powerful or more beautiful or more successful or richer or freer or more democratic or anything like that. The number one reason is because people think it does more good in the world. In other words, nothing to do with how well it treats its own people or the quality of life they enjoy, everything to do with what it contributes to the international community, to humanity and the planet. That, it turns out, is what we care about most. Wow. And actually already uh, uh, there's there's a comment in the live chat section of this, which was the talk and branding. Uh, Brian has said, I, I do branding for NGOs, uh, but it's actually an exercise in finding their authentic story. So unless they live that story, it's just marketing. Brian has got it in one. It took me 20 years to reach that. Yeah, tell us more. Wow. I mean, there are important differences, obviously, between the way that you quote unquote brand a product and quote unquote brand a country. Telling the story is very important with products and companies in the marketplace. With countries, it's not even about telling your story. In fact, one of the things that I've been saying to governments for years is just shut up, just quit the propaganda because it doesn't work. With a product, it's a different thing. You know, I've got a I've got a mobile phone here that I want to sell you, okay? Um, and so I need you're interested. You're in yeah. the market for a mobile phone. I've got to tell you why it's good. But people are not out there looking to buy a new country. They already have a perfectly good country of their own, and by definition, they're not in the market for a new one. So it's actions alone that create the images of countries and over a very long period. So if a country does want all of the benefits that it gets from a good image, there's only one way to do it. And that's by managing somehow 
to juggle that difficult balancing act of doing the right thing for your own people whilst doing no harm and preferably doing good to people in other countries, looking after your own slice of territory and at the same time looking after the entire planet and every square inch of the Earth's surface. That's the challenge for, go for governments and countries in the 21st century. I call it the dual mandate because leaders in particular, they're not just responsible for their own people and their own little piece of land. They're responsible for everybody and everything to some degree. And the art of good governance, the art of running a good country today is to see if you can bring those two things together. And the countries that come high in the good country index, like Sweden, for example, which, as I announced yesterday, came top for the second time. It's the only country that's ever come in the number one position more than once. They wow. do an incredibly good job of harmonizing their domestic and their international responsibilities. Sweden is by no means perfect. No country is perfect. Sweden has huge problems. All countries have huge problems, but it does a better job than anybody else of doing the right thing for its own people, the right thing for its own territory, whilst doing the least possible harm and the most possible good to people in other parts of the world and to other parts of the planet. Wow. Um, you, you, you talked about when we need to, we need to tell our stories. A country needs to tell its story. That's a whole sociological uh, challenge there and, and what whenever I hear you say that my mind goes to to Brené Brown's latest book in which she kind of purports for the first time she says she's changed her mind on on how we can read people uh, she says she doesn't think it's possible any longer to look at a human and and be and know what they're going through uh, it, it says you know even best psychology psychiatry you know the, the only way that you really get to know how somebody's feeling mm -hmm. is actually if they share it with you and so you invite them to tell their story. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about a country story. My mind went immediately to the individual and the individual stories. Mm -hmm. Surely individuals, Simon, are what makes up a, a country. Mm -hmm. uh, so whenever you say that, how, how do we begin to make sense of the lives of the individuals in the stories and and? Well, first of all, let me let me just again query that idea about telling the story. Um, most of us have an appetite for hearing other people's stories and the stories of communities to some degree. Mm -hmm. Some of us have an appetite for hearing the stories of countries, but countries trying to tell their stories, it works through culture. That's what culture is for. Cultural expression is the way in which human communities externalize their experience of the world and their views and their values and their fears and their hopes. That's what culture is for. And that's the only way I know that a country can quote unquote tell its story. Unfortunately, in our modern age, what we tend to find is that the priorities get reversed and the majority of governments underfund culture to a terrifying degree because they can't see any payback from it. And also because they know that cultural people will carry on doing culture, even if you don't pay them anything at all, because it's a vocation. And you have a great example of this in your book about Ireland and a law in 1969 to, to give tax relief to artists and creatives. Yeah, which was a great thing and did quite a lot to, uh, to, to tell the world that Ireland was a country that respected culture. If you act that out in your fiscal policy, it means something. It's not just talk. But um, the, 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 the governments around the world um, who actually invest in culture do tend to see the results of that. Not immediately, it takes a while, but the majority don't. 
And as I say, it's because they know that artists and cultural people in the cultural sector are so in love with what they do. It's so important to them and their lives that even if you underpay them, well, you can get away with it. It's the same with nurses and doctors. It's the same with priests, you know? Governments just know that these people are operating on a vocation and they will do it even if you underpay them. And because public money is always short, you underpay them because you know they'll perform. That's the problem with culture. And so what governments that do instead of trying to tell the nation's story through culture is they try and tell the nation's story through advertising because they think it's easier and they think it's more effective and they think it's quicker. And they're absolutely wrong. But as I said before, country after country after country, spending millions upon millions of euros of taxpayers' money and donors' money on these idiotic nation branding campaigns. And it achieves absolutely nothing at all because nobody's interested and nobody's paying attention. And the world is too big and too noisy to hear about yet another country. I mean, last time I checked, there were 205 countries out there. I mean, how many of those are we actually going to spend time thinking about? You know, we're lucky if people even think about their own country, let alone mm. 204 others. So, um, but, but bear in mind, I'm not talking about tourism promotion. That's a different thing. If countries want to spend money on promoting tourism, um, you know, Bort Fulcher and so forth, and many other very, very um, extremely uh, successful examples of countries who've um, promoted tourism using advertising and marketing, of course that works. But that's not trying to change the image of the country. That's just selling vacations. And that does work. And you should do communications for that if you can afford it. But I'm talking about something else here. I'm talking about the dozens of countries who spend huge amounts of money on PR campaigns. I mean, it's always the rogue nations that spend the most money on fancy American PR companies to try and burnish their images. And it doesn't work because they're still rogue nations and everybody still knows it. I mean, how much money does Russia spend? on um, American PR agencies to try to improve the image of, of Russia. V very, very, very large sums of money. Has it worked? Mm, I don't think so. We're probably going to get into that in a little while, Simon. <laughs> uh, we definitely, because again, you talk in your book about conversations with Vladimir Putin. And uh, so there was no way that we were not going to have that conversation. But before we do, you're telling us that the way to become a good country, a better country for your citizens and for the world is to shift your culture. Yeah. How well, do we do that? that? That's that's part of it. It's On its own, it won't do much. Um, I think investing in culture and um, uh, perhaps it's um, inappropriate to quote uh, 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 Chairman Mao, but let a hundred <laughs> blossoms bloom. Um, Korea is a very good example of um, of, of the stimulation of culture. It's, uh, it's resulted in so much success for Korea. Everything from Gangnam style, uh, right the way through to the Korean wave, Hallyu, the, the, the um, Korean soap operas that are becoming popular all over the world. And all of this is helping to make people like Korea, feel good about it, and consequently to want to visit and so on and so forth. Now, all of that is because the Korean government has had the sense and the intelligence to invest in the cultural sector and to realize how important it is. A lot of countries in, in, in West Asia, Gulf states, are investing massively in, in culture. And it's easy for Western nations to sneer at them, throwing their vast financial resources at opening uh, branches of French museums in their own country, but it's good stuff. This is what we need to do, and this is what countries need to do. But if, if I may, I interrupted yeah. myself there, just to say that, that, that that's one small part of it, but it's not the main thing. 
The main thing is that you actually have to, as a country, commit yourself to doing something that will benefit the whole of humanity and the whole of the world, as well as your own population and your own territory. Not self-sacrifice, that's, that's an absurd idea. The idea that countries need to sacrifice themselves for other countries, that's a very old fashioned idea. It's a, basically a post-colonial idea that it, rich countries have to give away all their spare cash to poor countries and that's what makes you a good country. No, that gets you to the starting line, but it doesn't make you a good country. Making you a good country is thinking creatively progressively and, and, and in a serious principled way about how you as a country can truly be part of the team that runs the planet, because every country is. It doesn't matter if you're the president of, 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 um, of France or the president of Sao Tome and Principe, you're still part of the team that runs the planet and you can still contribute in those international meetings, in that international environment, to do something to make the world work better. And you just have to look at what you're capable of. And sure, small countries can do less, but they don't have to do it on their own. They can work together with other countries. So is it migration? Is that where we could make the biggest difference? Is it climate change? Is that where we could make the biggest difference? Is it uh, toppling tyrants at home or in other countries? Is that where we could make the biggest difference? And that's the kind of grand strategy that countries and governments and their populations together have to come up with. So you're talking about habits and practices that, that, that form national habits and practices. Um, how, what is the role of the individual in, in that? Because a lot of this conversation would, would I, I, could, I could understand somebody listening and say, he's talking about, he's talking about governments actually, he's talking about decision makers. Are you just needing to get to the decision makers within the country or are there habits and practices and tools that, that the likes of you and I, uh, well, you all know, actually, you've got the tools, you do work with governments, the, the likes of I, uh, the, the, where we can all actually participate in, in, in forming a culture that helps our country be good for us and for the world. Um, it has to be both. We're, we're not going to make the various deadlines that we're facing as a species, deadlines for heading off climate change, um, for protecting ourselves against future pandemics for protecting our, ourselves against future wars. We're not going to make any of these targets unless we approach this challenge from both ends. So I try to yeah. do that. The reason why I publish the Good Country Index and the reason why I do a lot of what I do is because I'm also trying to look at the individual end. What can we do individually? Now, that's a really interesting question and an enormously productive one once you start thinking about it. So let's just park governments for the moment. Let's look at you and me. Well. Okay, I don't want to brag, but you may notice I'm wearing a sweater even though I'm indoors. The reason I'm doing that is because I turned down my central heating by two degrees last week. And the reason I turned down my central heating by two degrees is not only to save the planet, but also because I want to stop subsidizing Vladimir Putin's gas and oil exports to the tune of 800 million euros a day. And on the one hand, here we are um, uh, sanctioning uh, Russia for, for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And on the other hand, we're buying 800 million euros worth of his gas and oil every day. So Vladimir Putin must be, must be giggling at the thought of that. Now, here is something that every single person in Europe could do right now. Not every single person. Okay, if, you're, if, if, if you've got health issues or whatever, obviously be sensible. But the majority of us could turn down our central heating by two degrees. The majority of us could cut the number of 
trips we take in our car, if we drive a petrol or diesel car, um, probably by half, without any personal inconvenience whatsoever. In the house, you just wear a jumper. And we are immediately doing what we desperately need to do, which is to reduce our dependence on Russian oil and gas and to stop feeding this war, because we're giving with one hand and taking away with the other. And I'm sure that a great many of us are feeling, yeah, well, we're doing those sanctions. We're not doing the sanctions. The companies and the governments are doing the sanctions, but they're rendered practically worthless by the fact that we continue to shovel euros into the Russian economy at a terrifying rate every day. So wow. that's yeah. one example of how there's a simple, practical, personal solution every day for almost everything that goes on in the world. That one happens to hit about three of the things that are going wrong in the world at the same time. Absolutely. It's not just Russia, it's also climate change. This podcast is proudly supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective, a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make the Good Summit look great. Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you take me back to another small example where I was always a fan of meat-free Monday. And it turned for me into meat-free one or two days a week that I can. Uh, and I, I got married nearly a year and a half ago. I, I went for the package deal and got three stepdaughters. And they're, they're absolutely fabulous. And, uh, you know, at least out of the three of them, and sometimes all three of them, on any given day, I would say I'm a vegetarian and it never it never lasts. Sometimes it doesn't even last all day. But while they're saying I'm a vegetarian for this meal, then I'm like, well, then we, we can do that. And in the back of my mind is while we're going vegetarian for a certain number of, of meals a week, we're actually contributing to uh, the struggle against climate change. And it's it's just it's forming a habit that we can get into. And I struggled with it at first because I'm like, you're a vegetarian or you're not. You know, uh, this is Monday. Will we do meat free Monday? Are you going to be a vegetarian? You're a bit young, but we can do it if you want. So, no, no, actually, let's just do the bit that, that we can. And if you're a vegetarian for this meal, that's OK. Uh, and that's positive. Um, if, I, if I had if I had um, two sentences that I could say to the whole world, the first one would be let not the enemy, let, let, let not the perfect be the enemy of the good which is exactly what you were just saying. We all of us, and it's not just in the British and Irish cultures, it's everywhere in the world. We all have this love to, to aspire to do things 100%, which is a, one of the wonderful things about humanity. We are amazing the way that we always want to do even more than we're capable of. But we have to suspend that. It's so much better to do something than to do nothing and to forgive yourself for not doing everything. Yeah. Of course, the direction of travel is important. Of course, you hope to improve. That was the first thing. And then the other sentence I'd like to say to the entire world, if I could, is um, it's not obligatory to have an opinion about everything. And that may sound like a bit of a joke, but it's actually at the heart of so much of what's going on in so many societies around the world today, that increasingly everybody Go feels on. that they need to have a strong opinion about every single topic, even the topics which, frankly, the experts can't understand. And it's not necessary. Actually, it's a symptom of wisdom not to hold opinions. The older I get, the harder I find it to form an opinion, a hard opinion about almost anything. Because the older you get, the more you understand, the more you read, the closer you look at things, 
the more humbly and carefully you study the world around you, the more difficult you realize it becomes to actually form an opinion one way or the other, because every single issue out there is complex. It doesn't mean you can't fix things. It doesn't mean you should give up. But it does mean that your efforts should not be expended on having a firm opinion and defending it against all comers. I love that. I, I love as you, you just called it wisdom. I'll, I'll throw it back and say you've been very wise there, Simon. Uh, that, that's, that's really good. It, do you think that that particular second sentence you would say to the world, which, of course, in the days of social media and technology, you, you can. And I hope that your voice gets many, um, you know, uh, we've got some people listening. This is going to be a podcast and recorded. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for people's voices to get out there. That's that's one of the positive aspects of the technological revolution that we have been living under for the last 30 years. But that sense of needing an opinion and everything, is that part of the death throes of the modern world? whereby there was an atomistic worldview where if you can break everything down and understand every part of every constituent piece, and if you can explain it, if you can take it apart and put it back together, and if you can have knowledge of it, then somehow you are above the other people. You know, and that, that's certainly where academia went. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that a fair I think comment to make? I think we're we're moving into a different <clears throat> world. I think it's part of it, definitely. I think another important part of it is just a general sense of <clears throat> panic about whose opinion we can trust these days. Because let's be honest, the, yeah. the, 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 um, the groups of people who traditionally societies have trusted um, have so comprehensively disgraced themselves over the last hundred years or so, the politicians perhaps in particular, but also the corporate bosses through their, their, their greed and their secrecy and their deviousness, um, so many religions because of the behaviors of so many religious leaders. Um, and, um, well, we won't, we won't get onto the Russian patriarch, but um, let's just say mixing um, religion and politics is an unforgivable crime. Um, yeah. And that's been happening uh, on and off never quite so blatantly as during the, the current conflict, but on and off for many centuries. And so it's not surprising if we're all in a bit of a panic and we say, who can we trust? As Michael Gove famously said, a British politician, I think we've all had enough of experts. I think what he meant to say was probably something like that, that we mm -hmm. all just don't really know who we can trust anymore. So naturally, in this very, very democratic society in which we and many people around the world now live, mediated by social media, which is potentially a very democratizing um, influence, um, we tend to think, okay, it's up to me to form the opinions. And in on most cases, we just can't do that because there isn't enough time, because we're not experts. To understand, to be an expert on Brexit, you'd need to have worked with the European Union for your entire professional life. And still, that's a difficult thing to, to form an opinion on a really informed opinion. So I think what we're looking at here is the need to use social media in a different way. What it offers us is the ability to have extraordinary conversations, not to simply bash people over the heads with our opinions. And if we can make that little change, it would make a huge difference uh, to, to the world. A little trick that I've uh, occasionally remembered to play, and it works like a, a miracle, is that when you go into a conversation on social media or even face to face, go in telling yourself that you're going to come out with a different opinion. 
that the purpose of having this conversation for you, the reason I'm having this conversation is because I want to change my mind. I want to do whatever I can to come out with a different opinion at the end of it. And then I'll sit down and have a think and see whether I like that opinion better than the one I started with or not. And if you do that, something magical happens. You start actually using those moments in the conversation when the other person is talking to listen to what they're saying instead of using that moment to prepare your next uh, your next comment it's it's brain elasticity as well simon is isn't there isn't there part of neuroscience and neuro, that actually even this conversation will physically change the nature of our brains because we have engaged you know it's it's that stark that all our experiences, all our conversations go into making us the people who we are and our brains will actually take in new information and we'll try to know how to store it and we'll be phys- physically, physiologically even uh, different because of the time that we have spent. And I, I, I love that because it's so, uh, it says to me that every day and every encounter has the possibility for transformation and for change and how I come into that is going to be vital so it's the same thing as you just said really so so how do you measure cultural shift in terms of the the changing of values and habits that that does lead to a country becoming you know having more data points that show to be a good country well I mean the good country index um has got a um a a culture um, vertical in it. We've got seven verticals, things like science and technology, international peace and security, health and well-being, and culture is there. So um, anybody can look at that. It's completely open source. Uh, It's just www.good.country. And you can find the rankings and you can see. One thing I should say about the culture is that you do end up with some quite um, surprising results. uh, which a great many people wouldn't expect, the, the, the countries that rank right at the top. I mean, um, you know, Belgium, for example, is often uh, the leading country when it comes to culture in the Good Country Index. And of course, people often misunderstand that. This is not saying Belgium has more culture than, than Greece or Mexico or India uh, or China. This is saying that for the culture that it's got and relative always to the size of the country, Belgium does a better job of sharing its culture than China or Mexico or Greece or anybody else. Beer? hmm? Beer? Belgian Uh, beer is not measured. Beer is not (laughs) measured. But but just in in terms of the cultural output of the the country and the efforts that Belgium goes to, to, uh, to, to, to mingle with other populations, to do cultural exchange, the data says, I mean, it's not my opinion, this is just what the data tells us. Um, Belgium does a better job of doing that than, uh, than Mexico does or, or Greece does or China does or any of the great cultural powerhouses. Now, having said all that, we've got to always be careful with the word culture, as you know, as well as I, because it really does have two meanings and they, yeah. they overlap and they're connected, but we need to be clear which one we're talking about. Here, I'm talking about cultural production, yeah. the arts. Yeah. Often when we talk about culture, we're talking at a higher kind of anthropological level. What is the culture of this country? In other words, what's the source code of their national values and morals and all the rest of it? Now, that kind of stuff is measured all over the place. I do it to some extent in some of my indicators, but by by no means are those the best ones. If you want to see how the the value system of of countries 
change from year to year. Honestly, the best place to go is the, um, is the, uh, the World Values Survey. Um, you can Google that. And World okay. Values Survey is a massive exercise that every year um, polls millions upon millions of people in loads of countries about their values. And it's asking them hundreds of questions about their views of, uh, of religious principles, of social principles, cultural principles, uh, and so on and so forth. Would you rather live next door to a mass murderer or a homosexual? You know, this kind of stuff. And that tells you really all you want to know about how countries are. I, I, I'm, thank you. I have not heard of the World Value Index. I will look oh. it up. Do you, do you follow it? I use it all the time. Um, the, uh, the, what are you uh, seeing with hmm? that? What are you seeing maybe over the last decade or 15 years? Oh Is there, are, there one, are there one or two things that you're seeing how many, how many value-based? How, how many days do you have? Um, <laughs> it, it's so many countries and so many parameters. I mean, what we, I, I guess, what, what do we learn from, from this kind of research? I think we learn that there is such a thing as national culture. Um, it does exist. And, um, the, and, and it sort of more or less equates with the nation state. A lot of people say very sensibly, but what on earth is the nation state anyway? It's not a real thing. It's just an imaginary line drawn often by uh, colonial powers, often hundreds of years ago. But the reality of the matter is that um, national borders do circumscribe um, a set of common behaviors, particularly linguistic, particularly to do with people's relationship with society, how their taxes get spent, where they go to school and all the rest of it, which over time does produce a distinct worldview and a distinct mm -hmm. set of attitudes, which is different from other countries. Now they do overlap, they are complex. There are important subgroups within countries that have slightly different measurements on a lot of these indicators. And indeed, if a country has a lot of migrants coming in from another culture, that does stir up the gene pool. I think it's all a good thing myself, but um, I think that's probably the most important learning from this kind of research, wow. that culture is a thing. Are you, are you seeing global trends? Has, has globalization over the last few decades changed what we would have maybe suspect to have seen in the value conversation. Are there such a thing as global values? Um, there have been many, many attempts over the centuries to try to formulate um, sets of global principles. I mean, you know, we have the United Nations Charter, uh, which is one of the finest achievements of humanity in my own personal opinion. And that's a very sincere, very serious attempt to try to come up with a basic set of uh, values and principles that cut across all cultures. I think, to be honest with you, these days we're a little bit hysterical about cultural differences. Um, and we sometimes tend to forget that fundamentally we are all human beings. And if you look at the differences between the world's religions, for example, they're not huge. And, um, you, you know, the basic fundamental principles of most of the world's um, uh, religions, I was going to say serious religions, um, respected religions are fundamentally quite similar. It's not rocket mm -hmm. science, you know, mm -hmm. doing to other people the way that you would wish they would do to you. These are all very basic recipes for a functioning society. So I think we can, I think we can overstate the case about cultural difference. And there's a tendency to do so at the moment for all kinds of very clear reasons to do with social justice, racism and all the rest of it. But it can disguise from us the essential fact, which is that deep down inside, we are actually pretty similar. And there aren't too many things that we would fundamentally disagree on. And I think it's always important to remember that. 
Um, you, you asked though a, a question which I which I dodged, um, which was about the sort of overall uh, picture of cultural trends. There, there is one. It doesn't come from the World's Value Survey, but it does come from other sources of anthropological um, uh, studies. And that is that by and large, globally, people are becoming more individualistic and less collectivist. So the picture, particularly in East Asia and South Asia, back in the 1960s, when, for example, Hofstadter, the Dutch anthropologist, did a lot of his research into cultural differences, where a lot of those societies were profoundly collectivist that their values were geared very much towards the good of society as a whole and less towards the good of the individual. Whereas America, for example, was the classic individualistic society. Society can go hang, what matters is my self-realization, mm -hmm. myself this, myself that. Now, what we can see is that there's a tendency as um, economic levels, prosperity rises unequally, but almost everywhere that people do become more individualistic and less collectivist. Is that a, quote, good thing, or is that a, quote, bad thing? I don't know. Big question. Oh, no, because you've just answered the own... You just told me you'll not answer the question I wanted to ask. <laughs> is that, do you think that's that's good? That frightens me, Simon. I, I am a massive believer in we are better together, uh, and a collective action and collective thought and collective effort, uh, nationally and internationally, well, so am I, but, but there you go. I mean, there, there, there are some things about individualism that aren't bad. Um, individualism and freedom and democracy do go very closely together. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, it's about your ability to make your own choices. And that, in some respects, is inseparable from an individualistically guided society. And there are bad things about collectivist societies. The individual doesn't matter. You go to prison because what you're doing isn't good for the rest of society. We don't care. Uh, if you really did it or not. The important thing is the cohesion of the group, the sense that the outliers are being punished. That's collectivism. That's not nice. Collective effort, absolutely, 100%. I mean, the whole reason I do the Good Country Index and all the rest of it is based on the supposition that we're never going to fix climate change or the pandemic or, or, or stand up to tyrants like Putin or anything else unless we stand together. That's for sure. Okay, I, I can see that it's about 10 to 12 and we said that we would be uh, finishing around about midday and you just you opened a door that I could sit with you for half a day on. Uh, but let, let's go back to Putin. Then mm -hmm. we, said, we said that we would come back to it. Simon, what on earth is going on in the world at the minute and how does your experience and research help you make sense? Um, okay, so first of all, first of all um, two things about um, the invasion of Ukraine, which are... Um, on the slightly more positive side. Um, the first one is um, the vision of a world in which Vladimir Putin is not the president of Russia. It's difficult really to see at this point how he could be the president of Russia for very much longer. One way or another, this spells change for Russia. That is a good thing because almost all, or, well, a very large number of the countries that are not playing the game as far as tackling the international challenges are concerned are supported and bolstered by Russia. Mm -hmm. So you've got people like Bolsonaro, um, you've, you've, you've got um, uh, Syria, you've got Iran, you've got any number of countries that are hindering rather than helping progress towards resolving the global goals. Now, in their vocabulary, it would be um, 
more to do with siding with America and all the rest of it. I don't quite see it that way. I see it as being uh, constructive efforts to make the world work better than it's working at the moment and to save us from catastrophic climate change and all the other problems. So with those players taken out of the mix and Russia taken out of the mix, uh, we could be looking at decades of relative peace and prosperity and the chance to actually get on and do the stuff that needs doing. So there's a prize there, which unfortunately will be paid for in the blood of innocent Ukrainians, but there is something good potentially at the end of it. Why or why it had to happen this way, I just don't know. The other potentially quite good thing or the reassuring thing about it is that if you listen to younger people puzzling over this situation, their complete puzzlement at what this guy is doing and how this can be happening in the modern world is very reassuring. It shows us how far we've come since 1939, mm -hmm. that the idea of a single individual running a single country deciding to get in a bunch of tanks and go and kill people in a neighboring country because he thinks that territory should be part of his territory. What the hell does that mean? And my children, and I'm sure your stepchildren, they look at that and they don't even begin to understand. And that's very reassuring because it means that we really have moved onwards. We really have moved onwards and we, the global society such as it is no longer even understands that kind of um, primitive prehistoric power mad male territory grabbing idiocy it's gone out of fashion and perhaps we needed this one last attempt to remind us how out of fashion it's gone and it's really good news that that's this i i hope this is going to be the last one um the thing that amazes me about all of this is that after all of these millennia of humanity suffering on such a vast scale from the macho delusions of tyrants, we still haven't figured out a way to prevent these psychopaths from acquiring so much power. How is it that we still haven't figured that out? That's a question. I don't have the answer. Um. What was he like when you met him, whenever you were working for the Russian government? What, what was it like to be there in that space? Well, to be clear, I never worked for him or for the Russian oh, government. I was, sorry, sorry. I, I, was, uh, I was invited to dinner with him. It was just a small group of four or five of us. That's right. You were, you were, inviting a, you were addressing a conference there. And That's right. There, there's yeah, a, yeah. There's a, um, been an annual um, uh, conference on uh, Russian uh, diplomacy uh, for, for many, many years, I guess, Nobody will want to go to it anymore, which is a shame because it was quite interesting. Something called the Valdai Forum, um, of which the Russian president is the is the patron. And there was a there was a private dinner with uh, with the president on one evening to which I was invited to my surprise because I was speaking at the um, mm -hmm. conference um, and I shared some data about how Russia is viewed around the world um, and some of the risks yeah. that Russia seemed to be seemed to be running. And I guess um, Putin and his uh, foreign minister and his spokesman, who were both there at the dinner, were interested in hearing more of my views on this. Um, it was an odd occasion. I mean, um, Putin is a very different man, as I say in the book, in small groups than he is in large groups. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he's changed since then. This was 10 or so years ago. Um, but he was very, very likable, very charming. Um, and one of the things that astonished me was that there were a couple of other Westerners, much more important people than me, who were there at the dinner, and they were falling over themselves to try and get a smile from him, um, just because of how powerful he was, even though politically they wouldn't have been happy at the world knowing that they were at dinner with this, with this man. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, that just made me wonder a little bit. What is it about people like that? What is the charisma that makes you want to please them? Um, I think part of the problem is that in society, we're all a little bit afraid of people with sharp elbows. And most of us, I know I do, tend to just get out of their way. And if you come across somebody who really, really, really knows what he wants or occasionally she wants and where they're going, we do just tend to get out of their way because we don't want to be nudged with that sharp elbow. And I think maybe that's the beginning of an answer to my previous question about how do we allow tyrants to come to power? Um, it was a fascinating conversation. I, I cover it in my book. And um, it, thank you again for offering to distribute the book to, 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 to your, your network and your listeners. Um, I'm not charging for it because it's more important for me to people to read for people to read the yeah. book than to buy it. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't make money out Which of books wonderful. unless you're Jeremy Clarkson or, or, or <laughs> Harari. Um, but um, uh, the 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 discussion of the ideas is the main thing for, for, from my point of view. Yeah, yeah. Well, Simon, um, thank you so much for being with us this morning and for. For discussing your ideas and for bringing uh, what I always am struck by is it is a massive intellect with a massive heart together. We don't always get the uh, the head and the heart held together in these conversations of what can be a better world and how can we help create a better world. So thank you for access to the book. We will distribute it. We will make a podcast out of this and the conversation uh, will go wider. But uh, for now, sir, you, you will be back with us before the the end of the year in real time with real human touching of hands uh with real handshakes and hugs and it'll be really good to see you but but for now simon i hope um, thank you so very very much thanks jules keep up the good work thank you wow that was keeping it good with the incredible Simon Anholt. Simon is going to be joining us in the autumn. Uh, listen in and stay in tune on the website for dates. We really hope that you were inspired by that conversation. We know that Simon enjoyed it. I know that I enjoyed it. And we hope that you can keep going and keep making the world a better place. So go on. This is Jules Hamilton inviting you into the world to keep it good. See you next time.